listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, Episode 157. Mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with former NFL football player and motivational speaker Thomas Williams to talk about the evolution of his mindset and what the key ingredients are that made up his mental toughness. Thomas shares multiple stories from his collegiate and professional career about how you don't have to feel good to perform well and how the right internal language will get you through those times. Thomas believes that energy management is the foundation of any successful experience. And if you don't have 100% of your energy, give 100% of what you do have. Tap into the frequency of this former NFL player turned motivational speaker and be prepared to redesign your better self. Are you ready to raise your game? 2021 is the year to increase your performance on and off the field. The Athlete's Edge Journal was designed to cultivate self-confidence and mental resilience through the power of sports psychology. Whether you are a professional athlete, a former college athlete, or have aspirations of greatness in the future, this journal is for you. Visit winthementalgame.com and use the promo code GRANTPAR20 to receive a 20% discount at checkout. Act now to take your mental game to the next level. What would more wins, higher productivity, or quicker recovery mean for you? NeuroPeak Pro optimizes human performance by working to promote balance within the autonomic nervous system. Used by the world's elite athletes, this training program is now available to you at home. Cutting-edge neuroscience and technology allows you to strengthen your brain remotely anytime, anywhere. Schedule your evaluation and get started with your brain training today. Visit NeuroPeak Pro and receive a 10% discount by using the promo code GRANTPAR. Hey, Thomas, how are you? Good, man. How are you doing today? Oh man, I'm doing, I'm doing awesome. Uh, I can't wait to share our conversation with my, with my listeners and just get into your, your mindset. Um, not only as an athlete, cause you've done some incredible things, obviously at the professional level in the NFL, but also your collegiate career is, is incredible as well. But we're going to talk about how that's helped you with life after football and talk about your transition. That's great, man. I love it. I love the 90% mental, you know, the mindset and having everything because it is, it doesn't matter about what you think you can do physically. It's all about your mind. So let's dive in and, and, and let's get to it. Yeah, man. Well, let's get into mental toughness. Yeah. Uh, I know throughout your whole career as an athlete, especially the position that you played uh, line, linebacker, you've had to be mentally tr- tough and train yourself to be mentally tough. So when you think about mental toughness, what does that mean to you? Yeah. Um, it, it simply just really means uh, being able to have your body do what you need it to do, regardless of the circumstance and the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's going back to elementary school. I always remember I didn't want to do something because I felt like it. So it could be I don't want to rake the leaves this weekend because I don't feel like it. Um, but my mom would always teach me that it doesn't matter how you feel. It matters what needs to get done. And so I was able to apply that in football. And until um, it was maybe what ninth grade, we were playing a football game. And uh, this is like 
when it all kind of came to me and make sure like, oh, this is a parallel for life. This is a parallel for sports. And this is what overachievers and the elite performers really do. And we were winning a game. We had like seven seconds left. We were up by like five points. I just remember if the other team got the ball, scored a touchdown, they would have won. But if we run the clock out, we win. So our coach said, run around until the clock runs out for five seconds, throw the ball up in the air. Long story, super short is mm-hmm. a teammate made a mistake and the other team literally got the ball, scored a touchdown. This is five seconds left. Wow. And after the game, the coach came up and we're thinking that he was going to be upset, pissed off at us. And he said, I'm not mad, I'm not pissed. He said, I think this is a great opportunity where we can learn something. We can learn how to finish. And he said, so every single one of you guys, I want you to go home tonight and I want you to do a hundred pushups. And we're all, you hear the groans, oh man, it was Thursday night because <laughs> freshmen played on Thursday and it was Thursday night. We had homework. We have to go to school tomorrow. We were just played in, you know, four quarter game. Oh man. Sure enough, I go home and after dinner, after homework, after my shower, I got down and do my pushups. My mom was watching TV. She's like, what are you doing? I said, coach wants us to do hundred pushups. So I did my hundred pushups and it might've been like 10 sets of 10. Cause I was super weak at that time. Like ten, that's all I had in <laughs> And so I went to school the next day and I asked my friends who were on the team and said, how many of you guys did your pushups? You know, one friend went and said, I did 50, I did 30, I did 20. The other friend was like, I didn't do any. And at that moment, I figured out like, this is what it's about. Mm. It's not about how you feel. I felt just as bad as all of them, maybe even worse. Right. I went both ways. My shoulders were hurting. I, w- I was in pain, all of that. But I figured it out from the time when my mom talked to me about raking leaves, doing my chores on the weekend. It doesn't matter how you feel. This what is needs to get done. Right. Regardless of what you feel. And the same thing my that, that coach taught me that day is regardless of how you feel, this is what needs to get done. And so whether you feel like doing it or not, are you going to do it? And so mental toughness is doing what needs to be done regardless of the circumstance, the situation. Wow, man. I love that. I love that story. You know, it's so true. You don't have to feel good to perform well. Right. And, and there's so many like, you know, examples in sport that, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, they call it the flu game, but it was food poisoning yeah. game. Yeah. You know, uh, Brett yeah. Favre, when he, um, his father passed away uh, right. the night before the Monday night football game, where he threw five touchdowns and a half, you know, killed it. Um, and there's tons of other ones, but it's, it's, it's a great point when you talk about mental toughness, cause you don't have to feel good to perform well. But what I try to share with my athletes or any athlete is that don't focus on the energy that you don't have focus on the energy that you yes. do have because the energy and feelings, they, 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 they connect. So when people right. feel like they're not hundred percent, then they think, well, I might not do well today. No. Right. Right. Yeah, that's so good. That's, you know, when you mentioned that point, um, I have a really good friend by the name of Aiken Adele who played 10 years in the NFL, was a mentor of mine. I had a teammate and he always used to tell me that just because you don't feel hundred percent doesn't mean you can't give it. So yeah. even though you don't cool. feel hundred percent, I'm feeling 50% today, you can still give hundred percent of your 50%. Exactly. And like when he said that, it just really clicked up again. It doesn't matter how much you have in the tank, just make sure you use all of it. And, you know, when I was in New England and we played, there's this big old sign that was in the training room. It was like the first thing you saw when you walked in and it's perfect. It's co- it's, it's, it's literally fits coach Belichick to a T it says, don't allow what you can't do interfere with what you can do. Mm-hmm. And when we think that way, it's like, there's so much going on. You think about what today and, and everything we're handling and going through in 2021, it's, there's a lot of things that we cannot do. 
but don't let it interfere with what we can do. Don't do not let it interfere with what you can do. Exactly. And so I think that with having that mindset with the mental toughness and then the ability of knowing that, Hey, sometimes I won't be a hundred percent, but I can always give a hundred percent of what I have. It's a magic. It's huge. It's huge. It's, and I love talking about it. I love talking about, you know, energy management and also the way you talk to yourself too. I mean, oh. like no matter if you, if you feel like 50%, but you still need to perform, it's about get to, I get to, right. I, I mean, I learned that later in life, man. If I was, when I played football, if I uh, had that whole mentality of, I don't have to do shit. Like I, I don't, um, but if I want to be on this team and be the starting quarterback, there's some things I have to do, yeah. but, but I get to do it. Yeah. And you know, it's funny you mentioned that because that's the same thing that I tell when I teach my athletes, when I'm at USC is that, you know, the difference between have to, like, we have to go to training camp, but we get to raise a trophy yeah. like the championships. And so for me, you know, winning two national championships, I found that out very lucky, like at, at an early age at 18, like, I wanted to quit. That's when we had double days. That's when training camp was, you know, in the middle of the day when it was hot and it was uncomfortable and you hated football. How can you hate something you've always loved and thought you were supposed to do? And it was like, you have to do the things you have to so that one day you can do the things you want to do. And so we have to go to training camp, but we also want to raise that trophy. Yeah. I want to raise that trophy. And I raised the trophy two times in a row, my freshman and sophomore year at USC, because of the work that we did when we had to do it. And we had great guys like Sean Cody one time. We used to do these, these workouts in the morning. It was 6 a.m. run. And literally at 6 o'clock, Coach yelled, hand down. If you were late, you had to come back and do it at 1 o'clock. And it was, it, was, it was 60 minutes of pure hell on cone, speed ladder, you know, the roll drills. It was just like, if you can imagine the worst workout physically, then we did that from 6 to 7 in the morning. And I remember one of the times at the very end, we did these things called 150 and it was 150 yard triangle or I'm not, not triangle. It was 150 yard rectangle that we run. It was almost like running track. Mm -hmm. And so depending on how many times throughout the course of the, uh, the workout, somebody had a, you know, knocked over a cone, somebody messed up the ladder. Somebody was bent over. That was huge. Do not bend over because you'll get the whistle blown. And it's like, they start adding times to you. You would run. So we would normally usually have to run one to two. Uh, depending on where we were in our training. But if somebody, you know, didn't cross the line, you got to run three. If somebody wow. bent down between, you know, when, when we were working out, that was four. And so we had to do maybe let's call it five this day. And I remember on the third one, uh, Sean Cody ran around one of the cones, grabbed the cones and threw it on the ground because that was another rule. If you knocked over the cones, when we were running the one fifties, they added another one. It was all about discipline, right? Wow. Again, doing what you know you need to do regardless of the circumstance and the situations. Right. No, no excuses. And so after he threw the cone down, he finished through and coach Carlisle said, well, we got one more. And everybody was mad. Why do we have to, why do we have to? And Sean looked at everybody and said, we get to do another. Wow. And that was the mindset. It, and, and it's, it's one of those things that a boss can tell you kind of like, what is the culture? He'll set the tone or, or she'll set the tone, whatever they, whatever they decide. But it's another thing when the employees, when the team does it, not yeah. just the coaches, not just the, the, the VPs and the execs, not just the top notch C-level folks. It's about the people from the inside. You know, one of my mentors, John Gordon has this phenomenal saying that culture is built from the inside out, not the outside in. And so it's from the bottom up, not just top up, 
when it bleeds down, it's actually from the people who are actually, you know, sleeves rolled up, digging in the dirt. And so when you mention that it's, it's the get to versus the have to Sean Cody taught us that day, me at least that day, you know, get to versus have to, and it's all in the mindset and what you tell yourself. Yeah. You know, that, that's an, another whole segment we can talk about culture because I, I love culture. Culture, you know, considering playing football for 13 years and then being in corporate America and sales for 17, yeah. I've been a part of so many different teams and cultures. So I, I love it. And there is nothing like seeing and witnessing, especially if you are a coach, a player led culture. So when, when, when guys are holding other guys accountable, when they're cleaning up the equipment or setting up the equipment, when they're, they're doing things without being told and it makes the, the coach's job a lot easier, but it's just, um, there's a frequency that yes. exists. That's just, it's a beautiful thing to see and be a part of. Yes. Yeah. And, and I feel like it's when you have that, then the coach kind of can do and focus on their job of like schedule practice, um, in the same thing, you know, in the corporate space where we can focus on the mission as opposed to focusing where we are. It's like, you know, some of the greatest teams that I ever played on, we got out of, we got to such a great start during training camp when we were in the season, we could actually focus on the season. We didn't have to go back to what they call day one install. It's the okay. stuff that you do at the very beginning. It's like, this is where your Jersey goes. This is where your helmet goes in your locker. This is how you line up in the huddle. This is, you know, what shoes you wear to workouts, what shoes you wear on the bus, on the plane. Like that's a day one install stuff. Like you right. don't have to be an elite athlete to know how to hang your helmet. Like your helmet does not go on the floor next to the tape that you cut off. Like your tape goes in the trash. And I remember specifically, you know, talking about culture is that coach Ed Ogeron, who's at LSU now, uh, he was there at USC and he would always inspect the locker room just randomly. I want to make sure, like, if you guys can't clean up after yourself, if you can't do this the way that we've shown you how to do it on day one, then you don't deserve to win a national championship. You don't deserve to win the Pac-10 at the time. You don't deserve to be these elite athletes who we all recruited you to be. And we know that you can be because of the gifts that God has given you. And so he would come in and say, he would take a picture and then they would put it up on the big board. And he say, this is who you are. Don't tell me who you are. This is exactly who you are. We've told you that this is where, how a locker room needs to look. This is how it looks. So because we can't do the stuff that we're supposed to do this week against Notre Dame, this week against Auburn. We're going to finish doing what we started to do day one. And so day one install, you can't do day one install in the middle of your season or day one install in the middle of, of Q3. Like you, you day one install is for that, right? That's that, right. that's that acclimation period. That's that, um, you know, we bring onboarding process. And, and right. so understanding the culture with that, and then you get people who take pride in it. Hey, don't mess up what I got going on. Don't mess up my, <laughs> right. we're, we're in Q3. Don't take me back to day one install. And to your point, when you have people who keep everybody accountable like that, it's awesome. then the coach can say, look, this is where we're going. You guys keep focused on where we're at. I'm going to focus on where we're going. Yeah. And that day one install, it sets the tone, right? And it's, um, so I, I love that, man. Well, Let's get a little bit more into your mindset. Um, You played the position of linebacker. Mm -hmm. I know you played some other positions as well, but I know from, from just playing the game of football, when you think of like 
offensive linemen, defensive linemen, and linebackers. Now I understand there's other positions that, that get involved, you know, from a physicality standpoint, but you to play those positions, obviously they're, they're different, but you have to have a a certain mindset. Yeah. You got to be a little bit different. Um, so when you think about your mindset, when you played in high school, college, and NFL, how would you describe your mindset? And did it change as you went up in levels? Great question. So um, I'll preface this by saying, for me as an athlete, I was a great high school football player. And when I say great, like I, I really was. Like I was five-star parade All-American. I went to the All-American Bowl, like, you know, national. I was like top, top 50 players in the United States, top 15 in the state of California. I really was. When I got to college, I was pretty good. Mm. And when I played in the NFL, I was average. I was, I was an average NFL football player. So what allowed me now, it's like, well, you're thinking, well, how did you go from college to the NFL? If you were just kind of like mediocre, if you were just average, and it's just to the point that you said, I was able to shift my mindset first because I was able to identify with an alter ego. And we have to understand our identities, right? So let me take you back to my second year. Um, My first year, I registered it at USC. And the reason why I registered it is because when I was in high school as a phenomenal high school football player, I played the game of football the same way I went to recess, the same way I played in the park as Thomas. I didn't understand the different identities and stepping into those identities so that you can now become who you think you are. So um, I played my freshman year as Thomas on the practice field, in the classroom, around campus. I was nice. I was polite. I didn't want to step on anyone's toes. I was the guy who was afraid to outshine other people because how it would make me feel and look in the locker room. So I fast forward to my second year and I had Ken Norton, who's the defensive coordinator now in Seattle. And Coach Norton just started saying, man, you're, 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 starting to, you're starting to hit people. So I took that on as, wow, this is my new identity. And we played Cal that year, maybe in the second, second game of the season at the Coliseum. And I was strictly on special teams. And when I was on special teams, I just wanted to hit people. And so I hit this guy so hard on a special teams play that when we watched the film the next day, Coach Carroll invited the whole entire team into the the meeting room because he wanted to show them this play. And usually it's just the special teams guys. And then, you know, the whole team comes together and joins. But he said, man, we got we got a special treat. And so everyone's thinking that it was going to be Snoop Dogg, who he brought in before, Will Ferrell, who he brought in before. (laughs) It was going to be something fun for the team to kind of like bond and to to relax. But he said, watch this play. And I, I, I don't even remember the play during the time. And then I hit this guy so hard that he like, I hit him from the numbers and he like ended up on the sideline and I blindsided him. It was legal. It was clean. But right then he paused it and he said, ladies and gentlemen, Thomas, the Hitman Williams. And when he said that to me, I literally, I mean, I can still feel it to this day of like, this is yours. This is your name. This is what you need to protect. And also this is the expectation that we have for you. Now with that came a little bit of pressure, but it almost came with more pride of I'm the hitman. I'm the, I'm the hitman. Well, wait a minute. I'm not the hitman in class. I'm not the hitman uh, walking through the locker or walking through the locker room. I'm just the hitman on the field. And so when we went out to practice field that day and we were doing our bag drills that we normally do at the very beginning, he said, all right, hit man, let's do it. And wow. when he said that I stepped into my identity as the hit man. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the things I love to help people understand is that when you transition, we, we you know, growing up, they used to say, hit the light switch, right? On and off. Yeah. And so how I was able to, to really identify that is I started painting my face black. And so I take eye black and I would put it on my face, kind of like John Randall was, was one of my biggest inspiration. Mm-hmm. He would paint his face and he would transform into a completely different person on the field. I took on that same mantra. And so before the, before practice, before the games, I would go in the, the locker room and I'd go in the mirror and I'd take the eye black and I would just paint my face almost kind of like uh, a WWE wrestler, like yeah. a warrior. You know what I'm saying? Yep, yep. When I did that, I literally felt myself transforming into the hitman. And therefore I didn't have to apologize. I didn't have to feel uh, bad. I didn't have to turn on the light switch on and off and try to figure out who I was. I could literally walk into this figure that wasn't me, which means there was no judgment. And there was only one, one thing I needed to do. And that was hit everybody who's wearing a different color Jersey than me. Wow. Now, man, this is, this is what I love to talk about. Uh, we call it the switch. We call it the warrior mindset. And we talk about, you know, trying to teach athletes at a young age that when it comes to identity, your sport is what you do. It's not who you are. And if we can teach these athletes, he and she, who you are outside of sport, that when you make that switch, when you switch on the warrior or switching it off, cause you have to leave the field to go be who you are. Right. And it, and it's huge. So I do want to spend a little bit of time on that, but just because I love the game of football and I love feeling there, there's a feel when you play football, whether if you score a touchdown sack, whatever it is, there's feelings that you get in any sport too. But because you and I played it, <laughs> I associate it with it. I connect with it. So when you talk about being the hitman, yeah. whether if it's playing the position of linebacker or on special teams, how would you describe when you just perfectly light somebody up perfect form. And it's just like that. Everything is in alignment yeah. and you, and you hit somebody or you tackle somebody. Yeah. It's, it's, I've, I've never been asked that question and it, and it, it's really cool because you've played the game. And so you understand, doesn't matter what you do. There's something where your technique, the repetitions, the practice, your God-given ability and like perfection align. And it happened like it's, I would, I would basically compare it to hitting a baseball on the barrel of the bat, the sweet spot, and you don't even feel it. I would totally the same thing when you just absolutely just crush, you know, a golf ball with your driver, you don't feel it. And it doesn't go left, right. It goes right down the pipe and it goes exactly where you want it to. And you're like, why can't I just do that every time? And so I feel like the beauty in it is that it doesn't happen all the time. And so that's why you have to kind of take a moment's notice and saying, that's what it was. That is where it's almost like the horizon. That is when the sky and the ground both meet at the perfect place. And it's just beautiful. Like talking about it because the art of it is, is so beautiful. Um, The way I would describe it in the moment is again, you don't feel it. It's effortless. You don't feel it because you know, the physics, the, the aerodynamics, all the other, you know, words that you would, that would use to describe it. It just matched up perfectly. Um, you know, there was, there was a couple of hits where I never felt it and only saw it on the replay. 
uh, one time when we went and played Stanford at Stanford, again, it was on special teams where um, our team was, I think we were down by a little bit and it was a play that I made. I hit the guy. I didn't feel it. He held on to it, but it just shifted the momentum of the game. Like you could feel it even in the crowd. You could feel it on the sideline. Like our defense felt, you know, inspired after that. It was a little bit of mojo. Um, For me personally, of course it feels great because we practice for years and for decades for certain things. And when you get it just right, it kind of just reminds you that all of the work that you put into it, it was worth it. Like those, 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 those early mornings, those late nights doing that drill for the thousandth time, you know, you've done it 999 times. Now (laughs) it's a thousand times. It was worth it because it lined up perfectly. And there's, there's not anything that there's nothing to describe it that would actually put it and give it its, its, its reverence, but just knowing that it was absolutely perfect. I mean, it's what we live for. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, it's, it's, it's connection with your craft. I mean, there's, there's all these things that we do when we're playing the game of football or any sport we have a connection to, but that one, especially being on defense, that's, that's your job, right? So when you connect with that, there's alignment there. It's, um, I know I, I played defense for a little bit, so I kind of get it before I went full on quarterback, but, <laughs> and I want to, I'm going to circle back on the whole identity and, yeah. and also your identity of Hitman when we actually talk about transitioning out of sport. Right. Um, but I, I, I want to touch a little bit about preparation now f- for someone who played, you know, who's won two national championships was in the Rose bowl for, you know, four times Yeah, you played at the, you know, the, the NFL level, when you think of like the national championship game, when you think about the Super Bowl playoffs, like the hype that goes into it, did you just treat those games as another game or did, you know, cause you know, I know Pete Carroll is huge about the Super Bowl is just another game. It's right. if you want to make it Super Bowl, yeah, that's on you, but yeah. nothing's changed. The rules right. haven't changed. Nothing. It's just that there's really good football players on the field. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's again, another one of those day one install things. Um, one of the things I love about the cultures that really invest in the rookies, so to speak, the freshmen, uh, the newcomers is that they do a really good job of telling them about what are the expectations. And then there's an adaptation process that happens. And I've seen it in corporate. I've seen it in sports. I've seen it in schools. I've seen it in, in pretty much every industry. I've seen where it was good and I've seen where it was bad. Um, where coach Carroll did a really good job is that from the very beginning, he harped on practice. Let us know, Hey, we're going to practice for five straight days. We're only going to play for one. We're going to practice for five straight days, which means we're going to play 20% of the time, which means we need to spend 80% of our time in mental focus practicing. Right. Great. So he already set from the very beginning. Here are the expectations. You need to prepare five times as much as you play and perform. And so the same thing I do when I teach athletes, I say, we, we learn in three phases or we do three things. We prepare, we practice, we perform. You got, you, you, you can't, you can't do one without the other. You have to do all three of them. And where I learned that was in college. And so coach Carroll very early on for all of us as freshmen, and he does it for every class, he did it for every class is he let us know, you don't have to do anything better than you've ever done it before. Just do it how you've always done it. So, which let us know that you don't have to play on Saturday better than you practice on Wednesday. Matter of fact, I'm going to be upset if you play better than you practice. 
And so he ingrained that into every single one of us so that we knew that when we step on the field, it is a game so that when the game comes, it's another practice. So how can you, how can you eliminate the pressure? How can you bring the pressure down to you is that you put more emphasis and you put more pressure on yourself during those practice and those preparation moments than you could ever need or would ever be there during the, uh, the championship, so to speak, that big presentation, that deadline at work. And I'll also say that when we got there to those Rose Bowls, to the national championships, even I only went to the playoffs once in the league and it was a different experience. So I, I, I can't really speak to that. But what Coach Carroll did is that the weeks leading up to the game, we did everything the same way. We practiced the same way. He didn't say, OK, in this play, when you're going to make this play in the game, because this is the last play of the game. He never said that. He always put the emphasis on the moment, competing as high as you possibly can in the moment, putting the pressure on yourself in the moment so that when you get to the game, it doesn't feel like a bigger moment than it needs to be. And every single game Friday night, well, the night before the game, my five years at USC, he would tell us, guys, you don't have to go out there and do anything more than you've ever done. You don't have to have the best game of your life. Just do what you did Monday. Just do what you did Tuesday and all the way up to Friday. Just keep doing that. Because we all knew that it was more of a priority to perform in practice than it was at the game. Wow. You know, I, I, I say this all the time when I'm, when I'm working with teams and athletes, obviously we train for the game. Yeah. Like we want to have, we want to have stamina. We want to be in shape and we, we want to be ready for anything, but what we're training for physically and mentally is you're training for the moment. Right. So again, I don't care how awesome you are. You could be the top 50 athlete in the United States, but in that moment, if you're not dialed in, you don't know what you're doing. You're not executing your assignment. How good are you? And I love it that what you're stressing, what coach uh, Carol is stressing is that when you actually are practicing the moment that there's, you're eliminating a lot of pressure, a lot of things that can come in. You're just, it's just about that moment. And, and I think that's, where we need to be more is that we need to train performers for the moment, not for the, the result and the outcome, right? right? If you want that result and outcome, you'll get it if you're in the moment. Yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. One of the things loving that analogy is that, you know, it's the quote that there's, there's, there's two quotes that I love and they pretty much saying the same thing. You know, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle is one. And then it's people always fall to the level of their training, not rise to the level of their expectations. We don't rise to how we think like, I'm just going to hit it. Actually, you know what? Let me take that back. I've only known one player and I, and I love this guy to death, but I only know one player who could literally practice at a three and play at a 10. And it was Lindell White running back. Yeah. I think he's got like, you know, the most touchdowns in a, in, in USC history, like Lindell, when he will tell you, I'm not doing none of this during practice. And then he would go for a buck 50 on Saturday. That's the only athlete that I've ever seen. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying it's right. highly unlikely. And so that, those are the things that we have to understand is that we usually rise. I'm sorry. We usually fall to the level of our training as opposed to rise to the level of our expectations. Wow. I love it, man. I love it. Well, before we get into transitioning out of sport, um, I, especially when there's players like yourself that were drafted in the NFL draft, when you think about that moment, it's, 
it's a celebration. So all your hard work and all your mental mental preparation, reps, all that stuff leads to that moment. So when you were drafted in the fifth round by Jacksonville, like how did you explain like and share like how did you feel in that moment? Yeah, it was a uh well first off like I was saying before, I I I only started 10 games at linebacker in college in mm. 4 years. And there's, you know, now there's like 13, 14 games possibly in a season. So there was people who started more games in a season than I started my whole entire career. Uh, And that was, I mean, so I had expectations and hopes to get drafted, but if I didn't, I would have known why, like there's people who are more deserving on paper, so to speak. And so when I got drafted, I was like, holy cow, it actually worked. It meaning I had this dream at seven when I went to an Oakland A's baseball game. I'm 23 years old. It took me, you know, 15 years or whatever it is, 16 years to get there. And it actually worked. Like everything was worth it. And I had that first split moment. Now, the part about it that people don't understand is that your name flashes across the screen quickly, but you don't get paid for like three months. So I'm still, I'm an NFL football player, but I'm still living on a college scholarship, like stipend check. So I'm in the league. I am a NFL football player. I am employed (laughs) by the NFL. However, I had like $800 because our stipend checks were so low. Like I had $800 to my name. And so I'm like, wait, I called my agent. I was like, when do I get paid? Like, do you guys need my routing number right now? Do you guys need my banking information? Like, yeah. I'm hungry. I want to go celebrate with the family. And so he was like, well, you're not going to get paid for a while. And so I'm thinking, man, this sucks. <laughs> like, I, like, yeah, I'm in the league, but this sucks. I'm not getting paid. Mm-hmm. Um, but after after a quick moment, you know, obviously you embrace with your family and your friends. You're saying you start reminiscing about different times. Do you remember that time when, you know, you used to buy Walmart cleats? Or you remember that time when I drove you to practice? Or you remember that time when, you know, the coach said you, you were going to be t- terrible. All of these things come back into play. Um, but one of the things I do remember is that that moment lasts but a second because I was like, but what's next? Mm-hmm. Then about a month later, I show up to Jacksonville. I report to Jacksonville and I walk through the locker room doors. And the feeling that I thought I was going to have was like an euphoria feeling. Like I thought it was going to be a euphoric experience. And I thought it was just going to be like next level of like, I was starting, I almost thought I could like walk on water after that. For some reason, it was weird. Doors open. I walked in there and I was like, this is it. Hmm. Like I arrived. I arrived. Right. This is it. And um, I believe the reason why I was so on fire getting there and I, I lost my fire while I was there is because the journey is really the fun part. Uh, because once you really get there, like it's, it's nothing changes. Like, yeah, sure. I got paid. I went from making $1,200 a month to $17,000 a week. That's awesome. That's cool. Right. But then you have to pay more taxes, which I've never paid before that. Um, <laughs> right. But, but I'm talking about the feeling. Okay. Once I get to the league, I'm going to be the man. Once I get to the league, I'm going to walk around with a little bit more confidence. Once I get to the league, I'm going to, I'm going to feel better. It's not true. Right. And I learned that from firsthand experience. And so I had this dream. I wrote down from the time I was a kid that I want to go to the NFL, which I did. But where I'm at now in my life is that I don't write down kind of like, well, you know, next five years, talk to me where you're at. I don't do that. And, and the reason is, is because I have experience, me personally having experience of writing things down and I limited myself to writing it down. I wrote it down and I got there. I did exactly what I wrote down. I want to go to the league and I got there. 
And so for me, I don't believe in like having the, yeah, these, these aims and there's these North stars that you should aim to. But once I got there, I didn't feel any more of what I thought. I actually felt better holistically Uh, when I was pursuing it, when I got injured, when I had surgeries, when the doctor said I wasn't going to be able to run, when I went from first string to third string, because you got guys like Brian Cushing, Ray Maluga, uh, these Keith Rivers, these younger players who are coming in, taking your spot. I had fun. And I found out my identity, like we were talking about, my identity is I'm addicted to achievement. I'm addicted to achieving things, especially when it doesn't look like it. That's why I'm a public speaker. When I got done playing, and I know we're going to get into it, but that's why that's why I do the things that I do. And I find most adrenaline in accomplishing the things that kind of look crazy. What's something that no one wants to do? And if it's at my wheelhouse, oh, I'm gung-ho. I'm 100%. Here we go. Let's go. I love it, man. I call that the, the possibility mindset. Like when it doesn't matter anybody calls something impossible. What do you mean it's impossible? Right. It's impossible if you think it is. I mean, right. there's people that have done some really crazy things, man, and they made it possible. So um man, I I, I love it. I love I it's the process, right? That's why you like when you hear Nick Saban, but you hear all these other coaches, is honor the process, trust the process. It's right. the process and the process becomes the journey. And there's multiple times in my life when I, I was in the same thing. Like when I get there, it's like, when I get there, when I'm a senior and I remember saying this to my brother, I was a freshman and I'm like, man, when I'm a senior, I'm going to, I'm going to have more muscles than you are. Right. Mm. Um, when I get into my first you know, job and, you know, in, in, in sales, I had all these th- things. And what I learned was, it's not about when you get there. It's about being like, if you want to be, be it. And I had the hardest time understanding that whole phrase of fake it till you make it. Right. Cause I'm like, I don't want to fake anything. Like, but there's, there's a, just, if you want to get that promotion, if you want to be the first string quarterback, then be it. Yeah. Be. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. So, and I also love the, I have a hard time when someone says, Hey, share with me your five-year goals, your 10-year goals. I'm like, more often than not, I've done that nine times in my life and they've changed all the way until I get to the five-year mark or or 10-year mark. So what do I want? What do I want now? Right. What am I doing? And and, you know, to the point that you're, you're also making, and I've enjoyed, and I I've appreciated this is it's not about what you get. It's about who you become. And so who did I become along those four years, five years when I was in college, I became a resilient human being. I learned all of my foundations as far as like my willingness to never quit and never give up. It looks one way. Oh my gosh, there's something hit. So I, I believe in, in God and Christ. That's my, my thing. That's exactly what I believe in. And so I thought what it looked like was how it was going to turn out. Yeah. That was like, no, 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 no. What it looks like has nothing to do with what I'm working on. So you keep stepping again, process. You just take another step. I didn't ask you to figure out how you're going to get there. You just keep, keep taking another step. I'm going to work it out how it's going to look, but we get so caught up in how does it look? I would have never done any of the things, any of the things, um, if I would have decided to go off how it looked. Yeah. Big time. And I'm, I'm still, that's a work in progress for me is just, you know, it needs to look a certain way. No, it doesn't, right. you know, um, just, just keep on staying connected to your craft. Yeah. Now let's talk about 
when we trans, because I think it's huge. Um, it's very important because everybody at any level, especially if they put a lot of time into their sport, they're going to transition out. And with all the years that you dedicated to this journey yeah. of being a football player, um, you were, you got to a point in your career, you got pushed out of the game because of a neck injury. Yeah. So how did you deal with that? And when you think about transition, was it a good transition? Was it healthy? Did you plan for it? No, I didn't plan for it. Um, and the reason why I say I didn't plan for it is because every athlete wishes they could have played a little bit longer. That's, I mean, every single one of us, we just wish we would have played a little bit longer. And so, um, I never planned to be out at 27 years old. I had put everything I had into football. Now, did I have internships in college? Yeah, I had five. Um, on paper, like strategically, I was, I was well, well prepared. You know, I built a network when I went to USC, you know, the Trojan alumni family, I tapped into that. I got, I, you know, I built a reputation as far as being, you know, an athlete and a good person, right? Like coach Saban always says, you want to be an and person as opposed to a butt person. Like, you know, Thomas yeah. plays football and he's a good student as opposed to Thomas plays student football, but he's not a good student. Um, so with that being said, I was an and, and guy in the department where it was extremely difficult was, is that because my identity in season and off season, like in season and off season were both Thomas, the football player. When I, when I played football during the season, I was Thomas, the football player off season. I loved it. The attention, the status, the accolades, the notoriety, um, that people gave me, Hey man, you look like you play ball. And that just fueled me. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. It's, it, it wasn't funny then. It's funny now is that in 2013, I spent, I, I was, I was struggling with my identity and I, and I struggled with it so much that I couldn't let go of how people looked at me, how people perceived me. And in 2013, I wasn't a speaker. I didn't have a job. I didn't have any, I, I wasn't making any money and I saved, I did a really good job of saving money. And I spent $96,000 for the year, all because I wasn't willing to not be a football player. And when I say that, I mean, I was driving the same car. I was, I was living in the same place. I was going out to eat at the restaurants that I did. I was paying the whole bill when there was people at the table who were, had a job. I didn't have a job. And so I was still living that identity because I didn't have enough humility and enough confidence in myself to say, I'm not a player anymore. So therefore I don't need to live. I don't need to walk around. I don't need to accept the same things that I did when I was playing until somebody gave me a great piece of advice. And they said, when you're talking about your transition, let people know that you're transitioning and you don't know what you're going to do. But for me, I had this ego and I had this pride about myself that Oh no, I got it figured out. This is what I'm going to do. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I'm making a lot of money. I'm still having a lot of money. And the crazy thing about that, and I'll share this um, on your platform is because I feel like this is something that people definitely need. We, we need to shine light on this a little bit more is that I spent 96,000 or eight, because I was $8,000 a month was my budget. So eight times 12, I think it's 96. That that's what I spent that year. And I had to end up selling my house. Now I sold my house. I'll, I'll put it this way. My house now is worth $450,000 more than it was then. So my $96,000 spending habit cost me 
years. Wow. So thing, it's, it's, it's not about in the moment. It's about thinking long-term with any transition, right, right? right? It's not about planting the seed today because you want the tree to arise tomorrow. It's about planting the seed today because in years and generations, people will then have shade. So I was thinking about in the moment, not thinking about the $450,000. And that's just one example of it, right? We could talk about the emotional issues that I had Right. Um, where I had to go see a therapist for five years because I didn't have enough confidence. I had to deal with daddy issues, identity problems, personal identity issues from growing up. I did that for five years. So that was another part of it. But I would say one of the biggest things was for me, I didn't know who I was outside of a jersey and a helmet. Therefore, I couldn't go on living and existing. So um, one of the things that that really helped me is finding out and identifying what I was not. And the wow. first thing I had to do was finding out I was not a football player anymore. Wow. And so one of the projects that we did inside therapy, my therapist said, I want you to write to the NFL like it's a person. You're having a breakup. You need to have a goodbye because you're walking around holding on to this attention and all of this stress and all of this pressure. And like, you're angry for what? It was great. You made it to the 1% club. Awesome. Now you need to say goodbye, not bad bye, because you're acting like it's a bad bye. It's a goodbye for a reason. Yeah. So I wrote like a three page letter to the NFL, like it was a person and telling them how thankful and how grateful and also how mad I felt, how betrayed, how, you know, every emotion that I was experiencing, I wrote it down on a piece of paper and then I. I literally signed it, you know, sent it. I don't know. I don't, I don't even remember what I did with it, but in that moment I had a goodbye. It was closure yeah. from the transition. And from there without closure, you cannot move forward. Right. And now the NFL wasn't going to give me closure and call me and say, Hey, we're sorry. Or we love you. We want you to come back. <laughs> right. It's not going to happen. Right. And so what do you do when you need the closure in order for you to move on? But the person or, or, or thing that, you know, is never capable of giving you that closure is that you give yourself permission, permission to have closure with that. And so I did, um, and have moved on, you know, beyond, but I mean, it was a lot of work. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, I love that whole exercise of writing it out, writing that letter. Cause it's, yes, it's closure. It's saying goodbye, but it's also you're clearing the energy. So you you have, so you have more emotional energy to work with. So you can do the things that you want to do moving forward. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I love your story. And again, this is, Obviously this is about you, but I know that there's listeners are going to be listening to this and they're going to learn stuff. And, and with my, my whole transition, it took two decades for me to get it yeah. to like get, to get really let go of all that frustration and that energy of, you know, I didn't have a choice. I mean, I did have a choice, but my body told me like, Hey dude, can't play the game anymore because yeah. my hip. And which is really funny is when you think about the things that I had to deal with for a long time was self-acceptance. Mm. And when you're a quarterback, right? Same thing you're talking about the lights on you. And when you're a starting quarterback for man, out of the 12 years, I, I was 11. I was starting quarterback. So wow. I, it would felt good to be that quarterback when people were like, was it your grandpa? Yeah. <laughs> I'm grandpa, yeah. you know, and it felt yeah. good, but being like the quarterback, you got popularity. I was homecoming King for three years in a row in high school and everything in college. It was, everything was this easy or easier. Yeah. Yeah. So the, what was really funny is that when I started doing this job, becoming a mental performance coach, and I was working at different high schools and colleges in the beginning of my, of my career as a mental performance coach, I remember this moment where I was working with this high school program 
And I've been working with them for, I don't know, six weeks. Felt like I had relationships built, the rapport, the trust. And like there was good energy every session. Well, there's this one session where there was a group of people like in the team that were in the back, right? And they were just screwing off. They weren't getting involved. Like when we were meditating, they were like, all of them were sitting there looking at their phones. And I started to make it internally about me. Yeah. And I started to go, why are they disrespecting me? Do they? And I started to like make up the story and I was upset in the moment. Right. So I get done. I call my mentor Graham and I told him what was happening with me. And he's like, he's like, dude, when's the last time you were 17 years old in this day of age? He's like, you have no clue. Don't make it about you. Yeah. Like just keep, you know, keep with your work and believe in your work. And then if they don't want to like do the work, that's cool. Right. Like when they're ready, they're ready. But you're, you're the, you're the teacher, you're the practitioner. So I said, okay, cool. So I started thinking more about it. And even though I had all these accolades growing up in high school, all these cool things, I was motivated extrinsically. So it wasn't necessarily intrinsic motivation. So my stock was at risk every game when I played football in high school. So if I had a bad game, yeah, personal stock, if I don't do well, then people might not like me. Yeah. And so here I am 20 something years later in a high school and I feel like maybe someone doesn't like me. Yeah. And it started to bubble up. I'm like, Oh man, I got to take care of this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you hit that. So it's, it's, it's right on time. And I feel like and I want to segue a little bit because again, um, helping everybody out there is that that's what social media has done to us everything is about us. Right. And so if, if being, being in the league, being the starting quarterback, being the star, it is all about you. Like the team goes as far as you want to take it. The team, you don't have a good game. The team necessarily is probably not going to have a good game. Right. When you put your stock into, you know, other variables like outside attention, influence, you know, the opinions of other people, then you are a roller coaster of emotions. And yeah. you know, depending on you, you threw for 400 yards and you were, you know, 28 of 31. Like you were probably, a, you were probably the grant of, you were an A plus grant. Like, right. you, you know, you guys ran the ball 40 times. You went, you know, three of, of 17 passing for, you know, 42 yards and you lost. Like you were probably a terrible grant. Nothing changed other than seven days, right? Right. And so, you know, having that, I feel like is something very similar to what we're experiencing right now with like the social media era of like, I posted this last week. Now follow me here. So I posted this last week. I got 200 likes on this picture. I posted it this week. Nothing's changed about me. Nothing. Just seven days. I only got a hundred likes. Something's wrong with me. Right. So it's the same correlation. And so, you know, the, what, the reason why I mentioned that is because I started to notice myself again, not being me. I started being who I thought they, who they in football, who they wanted me to be, the fans, my coaches, my teammates. Now I'm on social media and I'm finding out the people who are following me. I want to be who they want me to be, which then therefore, who the hell am I? I'm not even me. I'm who they want me to be. And so I've been off social media for like the last six, 15 months because of that. When I was like, wait a minute, I'm the light. I'm my brightest when I'm doing it the way that I'm created to do it. 
I'm not my brightest when I'm doing it the way I think they want me to do it because it's always going to be a replica. It's like those jerseys, right? The the authentic jerseys when it was stitched on, I remember was $200 when I was growing up. And my mom was like, there's absolutely not, I'm not getting you a Shaquille O'Neal $200 jersey. I just found this Shaquille O'Neal replica jersey for $40. I can get that one for you. Right. And I'm like, okay, here's the thing. And it's crazy. I've never thought of this. But as we talk about the authentic and the replica jersey, everybody can always tell. When I went to school with my Shaquille O'Neal replica jersey, the numbers, the name, the team was iron on. It was like a plastic feeling. Yeah. But when it was the authentic jersey, those are the ones that were sewed on. You can feel it. It was almost like a 3D of the name, the number, the logo, all of that. And so I mentioned that because... Um, it was, it, that's great self-awareness that you have. And then also, you know, for people who are out there like, Hey, am I the replica of me or am I the authentic me? And yeah. when you walk around as the authentic you, people notice mm. in your value, self-value and the way that others value will be a little bit more just like the Jersey. Wow. Dude, that, that was, that was preaching the mental gospel right there, man. <laughs> I love it. Well, Share with me or share with my listeners about um, what you're doing now. Now, Life After Football, you've done a lot of cool things. You've written a book, you know, like keynote speaking, um, part of nonprofits. Um, Share with my listeners what you're all about right now. Yeah. So what I'm all about is um, I'm about greater than your jersey. And so what greater than your jersey really means is that I'm a great person. I just so happen to be a great athlete when I played. My jersey's long gone, don't know where it is. They could burn it, they could sell it. Somebody's actually wearing all of my numbers on all the teams that I played for. But that doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm still great. And so what I do is that I teach at USC um, to the freshman student athletes who are transitioning into college and helping them navigate that. And so it's everything outside of the game of football. They have coaches who will tell them the plays. They have strength and conditioning coaches that will tell them how much weight to lift, you know, how much they should weigh movements, et cetera. Same thing in the classroom with syllabus. But what we found that there's a void in a playbook for the most important play that a student athlete will ever run. And that's the play of being themselves for the rest of their lives. And so that's, that's part of, of a leg, you know, part of my passion and in, in the things that I'm doing also written two books, um, permission to dream and the relentless pursuit of greatness. Um, the first reason why I wrote it selfishly for me is that I wanted to identify and see if I could do something outside of my Jersey. I want to see if I could actually do something that the world doesn't see a, a lot of. We're seeing more of it now, you know, former athletes becoming authors, et cetera. Um, but when I did it, there it, it wasn't a thing. And so I wanted to tackle it. Like I said before, I want to do the impossible. I want like what looks impossible or what looks like, ah, he's probably not going to be able to do it. I want to do it. And so I went around doing research and I found out that the average book it takes free to write a book is two to four years. And I wrote my first book in 13 months and I wrote my second book in 11, just a little bit over 11. And um, so I I wanted to write those books, one, to have a legacy and a foot imprint that if I leave this earth, like I was here. Um, (laughs) And that was obviously before before I had children and um, and before, you know, having having a significant other. Um, And so that was my young minded thinking. Uh, But most mostly is that I just want to set a great example that. You know, we say that we're more than athletes. We want to be greater than the jerseys that we wore, but we also have to leave an example and set an example of doing that. And so outside of, of teaching the stuff with the athletes, the transition to the next level of play in transitioning out of sports, 
I'm also a motivational speaker. And so before COVID um, happened, I was on the road anywhere from 45 to 65 times a year speaking all throughout the country. Um, now I'm, I'm, I'm doing like we're doing right now. So I'm in front of my computer, uh, yeah. you know, dressed professionally up top and then in some pajama <laughs> bottoms down below, <laughs> I uh, which makes life a lot easier um, sure. and, 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 you know, more simple. Um, and so those, those are the things that keep me busy. And outside of that, just, uh, planning a wedding and, and getting ready to, uh, to marry my best friend. And then also being a, a, a dad for the first time, uh, to this little one who's, it shows me more and more that we think we're, we're training kids to be the people that they are, but kids are also always training us to be the parents that we're going to be. Be right. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, man, it just, um, what you've done so far has been real exciting. Uh, and right now being a dad and, and going to be a husband, I mean, a lot, a lot of, a lot of frequencies going right now, right? You're just yeah. connecting to the goodness, the greatness yeah. of it. And that's beautiful, man. And man, I, I could talk to you for another hour. Um, I, and I totally just, uh, I love your energy. I love your journey. Um, and I want my, my listeners to, to connect with you more and follow yeah. you more. Um, how can they, you know, follow you on social media and reach out to you? Yeah. So on social, like I said before, I'm, I've been off of it. Um, for you know more than a year now. So the easiest way to get in contact with me is just going to the website, which is www.thomasrwilliams.com. Um, there you can email me, you can connect with me. Uh, email is thomas at thomasrwilliams.com. So there's questions, there's thoughts. Uh, you know, let's let's definitely stay connected and let's work through, let's let's break through, you know, some of the obstacles so that we can ch- tackle the greatness in our lives. Exactly. The only way is through. There it is. Right. I love Obstacle it, man. Is the way. Exactly, man. Well, hey, Thomas, thank you for again for your, your energy and your stories, uh, journey, your vulnerability of just sharing your story, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. And I love being on your show and I can't wait to do it again, especially maybe when you, when you get down here to uh, Southern California, we'll do our next podcast in person. Yeah, you bet, man. 